0: Today, we're going to begin by looking at a story from the life of Jesus which shows us how Jesus addresses one of the most basic and important needs that every human being has, and that's the need for forgiveness, for forgiveness of our sins, for having our guilt taken away. Now, when I use the word guilt, I don't merely mean the feeling of guilt by feeling guilty. But I'm talking about truly being guilty. This is an important distinction to make because many people acknowledge having feelings of guilt. Real guilt, though, is something that people, they have trouble owning up to sometimes. Instead, what we usually hear is, it's not my fault. And we see this in all of us, from the two-year-old child to world leaders. It's not my fault. Someone else is to blame. We're masters at justifying ourselves and prosecuting others. The Bible teaches something, though, that is contrary to the popular thoughts of our culture. In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. According to the Bible, we are all guilty before God. We have all broken God's law. We have all disobeyed His will for us. We have all sinned, we have all chosen to live by our own rules rather than God's rules. And this is nothing to do with how we feel. We might not feel guilty, but we are guilty. Denying our guilt, it doesn't take it away. We are guilty whether we want to admit it or not. And trying really, really hard to be good doesn't take our guilt away either. None of us can be good enough long enough to atone for our sins. And we have this awful cycle that we're in where we are continuing to sin. Our guilt continues to accumulate. So even though we're working really hard to be good, we're not always good. So then more onto the pile. But here's the really good news. The gospel. God is offering us complete forgiveness for our sins. A full pardon. Complete atonement. Romans 8.1 says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through Jesus Christ we can be forgiven and have our guilt before God atoned for. We can walk free, fully pardoned, welcomed into His arms as His children. Now keeping these things in mind, let's go to our story. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. We're picking up where we left off last time. It says in verse 1, it says, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Jesus has returned to Capernaum from the other side of the Sea of Galilee where he saved those two demon-possessed men, which we talked about last time. You might remember that Capernaum is the home base for Jesus during His ministry in the region of Galilee. And this is where He's at. When people hear that Jesus is in town, they again flock to where He is. Huge crowds would gather wherever Jesus was. He would slip away for a while. But as soon as word got out about where He was, the crowds would quickly gather again. And so this is happening here. In verse 2, Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Matthew's Matthew's telling of this story simply says, Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. In Mark's and Luke's telling of this story, we learn that there is a little more drama involved. When these men, carrying their friend see this huge crowd of people packed into the house where Jesus is and jamming the streets in every direction, they get creative. Rather than giving up, they climb up on the roof of the house, tear a hole through it, and lower their friend down into the room in front of Jesus. Now we can only imagine the pandemonium of that moment and the thoughts running through the homeowner's mind. But when Jesus saw their faith, it says, so Jesus, he recognizes their persistence and ingenuity as an expression of faith. Their faith is seen in their actions. Real faith is revealed and expressed through our actions, through the way we live our life. Real Christian faith is not just a set of ideas that we hold to intellectually. It's something that affects how we think and how we live our life. James two twenty three or 2.26, for example, says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Our faith in Jesus needs to find its way into our hands and our feet, doesn't it? Well, like in many of the encounters that Jesus has with people, there's an unexpected twist in this story. Jesus, He seldom does what people expect Him to do. He seldom says what people expect him to say. In the gospel stories, it's like everyone is always several steps behind Jesus. And that's even true for his closest followers. Everyone is always playing catch-up. Do you think it's still that way in our day? Is Jesus still doing the unexpected? Is Jesus still several steps ahead of us? I think so. Well, here's the unexpected twist in this story. Rather than healing this man of his paralysis, Jesus says to him, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. So here's the scene. The roof of the house is ripped open, and this guy is lowered down into the room. The crowd is watching in silent anticipation. All eyes are focused on Jesus. He smiles at these men who have ripped the hole in the roof, pleased with their faith. Jesus looks down at the man lying on the mat and he can see the hopeful eyes of a person who has not been able to walk for who knows how long. Everyone is watching and waiting for the unexpected heat for the expected healing, I mean, that they know Jesus is going to do. And Jesus says, "Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven." And we can almost hear a cosmic record scratch, just like, (laughs) you missed that one, Jesus. It's what? I mean, that's not what Jesus is supposed to say. And, And to say that in light of this man's very obvious need, it sounds rude and in bad taste. What is Jesus doing? What good is it to tell this man that his sins are forgiven? I mean, how is this addressing his obvious need? He can't walk. Do you ever feel like the Lord is overlooking your obvious needs? Here's something for us to consider. Maybe what we think is a pressing and obvious need is not really as important as we think it is. The Lord sees things differently than we do. He looks at things from a different perspective than we do. Jesus is aware of the deepest need of this man and all people. This man is separated from God because of his sin. We can survive without the ability to walk. We can't survive ultimately separated from God. Jesus teaches us through this story what our greater need is. The most important thing in life is for us to be reconciled with God, having our sin forgiven, having our guilt removed, having our relationship with God restored. Everything else follows that. Well, verse 3, it says, At this, at what Jesus said, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Luke's account of this story tells us that teachers of the law and Pharisees had come from every village in Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and they're all sitting there watching Jesus. They have front row seats, able to see and hear everything that's taking place here the teachers of the law also called scribes were part of the religious upper crust of the day they were the theologians and the religious experts of the day these were men who had dedicated their lives to the study interpretation and the teaching of the scriptures the pharisees they were also among the religious elite of the day they took their religious observances very seriously being careful to carry out the law of Moses and the traditions of the elders with extreme exactitude. Well, these religious leaders, they've not come to give Jesus high fives and fist bumps. Instead, they have come to scrutinize him, to try to find a flaw in his teaching and the things that he's doing. See, they're the people in charge. And now this newcomer, who didn't come up through their ranks, is quickly growing in popularity and drawing people away from them, eroding their influence and their power base. They need to find out what's going on and put a stop to it. And Jesus' statement here, about forgiving this man's sins, it gives them the kind of opportunity that they have been looking for. When the religious leaders hear Jesus say, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven, they immediately think to themselves, "Ha, ha, ha. that is against the rules. You can't do that. Only God can forgive sins. That is blasphemy. For someone to claim to forgive sins, was considered blasphemy because it was claiming to do something that only God had the authority and the right to do. Blasphemy, the deliberate dishonoring of God in some way, was punishable by being stoned to death. This was a very serious charge to make against someone. Well, you know, just between you and me, but apart from the blasphemy issue, Jesus claiming to forgive sins would be Looney tunes unless he's more than just a man. I mean, if I started going around granting people forgiveness for their sins, you'd think I'd lost my marbles. Forgiving people for things that they've done to you is a noble thing. Forgiving them for things that they have done to others is cuckoo. Verse 4, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, the religious leaders, they've not openly voiced their thoughts, but Jesus knows what they're thinking, so he challenges them. And he asks them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Well, and they think, oh, well, that's an easy one. Saying your sins are forgiven is much easier to do than healing a man of paralysis. I mean, there is no way we could ever verify that a man's sins are forgiven. Anyone could say your sins are forgiven. Those are just words. Healing a man is something that can be verified. It's something that can be seen with our eyes. Well, in actuality, the ability to forgive sins is much more difficult To forgive sin will require Jesus to die. He'll be crucified to make forgiveness a reality for us. verse 6, Jesus says, But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. So that they... And everyone else present there knows Jesus has authority to forgive sins. He heals this man. And as sure as this man is healed of his paralysis, he's also forgiven for his sins. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God. Who had given such authority to man? The people are filled with awe and they glorify God. So, Jesus, he claimed to have the authority to forgive sins, something that only God can do. Well, in making that claim, Jesus is really declaring himself to be God. The religious leaders, they get that. That's why they're so worked up over this whole thing. Jesus, he doesn't argue or dispute with the religious leaders about what he said. Instead, he just says, I want you to know that I have authority to forgive sins. And then he heals this man. I can't think of a more drop the mic moment than that, can you? We all have the same need for forgiveness and reconciliation with God that this man did. We need to be forgiven. We need to know that our sin is no longer held against us. We need our guilt removed. And the forgiveness that we need is found in Jesus Christ. Just like He had authority to forgive this man, He has the authority and the power to forgive you and me too. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. In 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Through Jesus, we can be reconciled to God, have our relationship with God healed. Know God as our Father and know that we'll live forever with Him as His children. This next story starts in verse 9. It says, As Jesus went on from there, He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, He said to him, and Matthew got up and followed him. So Jesus is still here in Capernaum, and as he's walking along, he looks over at a man named Matthew sitting in his tax collector's booth, and he says to him, follow me. And Matthew gets up, and he begins following Jesus. Well, who is Matthew? Well, to begin, Matthew is the guy who wrote this book that we're reading. It's this Matthew. And this verse... Verse 9 of Matthew chapter 9 tells us Matthew's story of becoming a follower of Jesus. And I think it says something about his character that he spends only one verse talking about himself. I know a lot of people who would have spent a whole lot more than one verse talking about themselves. Matthew's also known by another name the name Levi, in Mark's and Luke's telling of Matthew becoming a follower of Jesus, they refer to him as Levi, Matthew, Levi. At the time Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, he's employed as a tax collector. The tax collectors were Jews who worked for the Roman government since Israel was a part of the Roman Empire at this time. Their their job was to collect taxes from the rest of the Jewish people for the Romans. Tax collectors were despised by the rest of the people because they were considered traitors and thieves. They were working for the enemy, the Romans, and they were known for charging taxes far in excess of what the Romans even required, pocketing the extra money for themselves. The hatred that the people had for those who worked as tax collectors is hard for us to grasp in our own time. Tax collectors were detested by the rest of the people. When a Jewish man became a tax collector, he was regarded as an outcast from the rest of society. He was automatically disqualified to serve as a witness in court. And he was excommunicated from the synagogue. He was a pariah. Jesus calls Matthew, a tax collector, one of the most hated men in town, to follow him and become one of his closest associates. No self-respecting Jewish rabbi would ever have the likes of a tax collector as one of his closest friends and students. But Jesus seeks this man out who's hated by the rest of his countrymen to be one of his followers and friends. Jesus, the Son of God, not only chose simple fishermen to be his followers, but he also chose the most despised of society to be his followers. I'm grateful for that. Aren't you? I'm grateful for that. And when Jesus calls him, It says he got up and he followed. Jesus is still calling people to follow him. And it doesn't matter what you have done in the past. It doesn't matter what you're doing now. You are not too bad or sinful to come to Jesus Christ. Jesus calls Matthew to come and follow him right from the tax collector's booth. He didn't say to Matthew, you know, get your act together and then come and follow me. He didn't say, you know, if you ever get tired of ripping people off and making huge amounts of money, look, I may have a spot for you on my team. No, instead, Jesus calls Matthew right out of the middle of his life. He calls us that way too. He calls us just as we are in whatever condition we're in, right out of the middle of our life. He'll work changes in our lives as we follow Him. It's a tragic mistake that many people make thinking, you know, I'm going to get my life together and then I'm going to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to start going to church you know, and doing it right once I get my act together. It doesn't work that way. Instead, He calls us to come to Him just the way we are. Right now, whatever getting it together is that you think it looks like right now, whatever that is that you think needs to be done, I'm going to tell you that He can help you do that after you come to Him. And here's one of the funny things about that. We often discover that what we think is getting it together is not always what He thinks getting it together is. Come to Him and let Him remake you As he intends, rather than try to implement some kind of self-improvement thing you got going on in your head. He has something much better in mind for you. Verse 10, it says, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, we don't know exactly what the dinner party is that Matthew's having at his house, what it's for, but it's probably, it's probably a party that he's having to introduce Jesus to his friends and relatives and to celebrate that he's going to follow Jesus. What an interesting idea having a party with all of your friends and relatives to celebrate you becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. It says, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now we know what kind of people tax collectors were because we just talked about it a moment ago. But what about sinners? What's, what are sinners? This term sinners was used to refer to common people who were not particularly religious, as well as the bad elements of society, the undesirables, the shady, those with bad reputations. It referred to the kind of people that you just don't hang around with if you're concerned about your reputation as a devout, religious, godly, good person. Because Matthew was probably wealthy, it's likely that the people present at this banquet are wealthy sinners and those with positions of authority and influence and power. These are upper crust sinners and people of questionable reputation. <laughs> These are the white collar sinners sinners. Jesus, he didn't just happen to find himself by accident at this dinner among a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. He's a willing participant, and he has actively sought out a relationship with these people. Sitting down to have a meal with someone in that culture was a sign of close fellowship. The Pharisees would not be caught dead being in the company of such people. Good people don't hang out with sinners. But here's Jesus eating with them. Oh, the scandal of it all. The fact that Jesus would include in his most intimate circle a person like Matthew, a tax collector, and he would sit at a meal with tax collectors and sinners is too much for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to keep quiet about. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So they ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Doesn't he realize who these people are? Doesn't he care what people will think about him associating himself with people like this? Jesus is doing Something here with these people, with these tax collectors and sinners, that is similar to what he did with the man who had leprosy back in Matthew chapter 8. If you remember that story, we talked about it. He physically touched the man with leprosy to heal him, something that a healthy person would never do. But he touches them to communicate in the most obvious and powerful way possible that he cared for him. And now Jesus is sharing a meal, an activity of close fellowship, which communicates that he cares for these people. Verse 12 says, on hearing this, the question by the religious leaders, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus tells the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting from Hosea 6.6, where the Lord is speaking to the people of Israel. These religious leaders, they have gotten things all twisted around. They're very concerned with carefully doing the religious ceremony stuff, what is referred to here as the sacrifice stuff. But they're neglecting to care for the lost and the broken, doing the mercy stuff. The Lord wants us to practice mercy and love, rather than simply carrying out religious ceremonies. Sick people are the ones who need a doctor. And in the same way, Jesus, he says he didn't come to call the healthy, the righteous, but the sick, the sinners. Before a doctor can help a sick person, the sick person needs to acknowledge that they're sick and they need the doctor's help. And in the same way, a self-righteous person doesn't recognize their need, but a humble sinner does. Jesus, see, he's not implying here that the Pharisees are righteous. Quite the contrary. The Pharisees, they didn't consider themselves to be sinners. They were blind to their own spiritual bankruptcy. And this is what prevents them from receiving salvation. The contrast between Matthew and the Pharisees is a stark one, isn't it? Matthew, he knew he was a sinner. He worked in this corrupt profession, had practiced sin regularly. He knew he needed Jesus Christ. and He had excitedly accepted the invitation to follow when Jesus gives it. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they think themselves righteous. And in the end, they are truly lost. I'm closing a couple of thoughts for us. Versus, what does Jesus' teaching here mean for us as the church? The church of Jesus Christ is not to be a fortress primarily concerned with protecting its adherents from the sinful world outside. The church, based on the teaching of its founder, Jesus Christ, is to be more like a hospital, a place for sick people. A place for sinners, a place for the broken and the wounded and the damaged and the lost, a place for those who need a savior, a rescuer, a redeemer, an advocate, a helper, a place where people can find salvation from the desperate condition of their lives, a place where people can find God. And those who've been rescued, who've found help, who've begun to be healed and restored, who've given their life to the great physician Jesus and us. We're not to close the doors of the church, preventing others from finding the same thing that we have. Certainly, we're to pursue holiness in our lives as followers of Jesus. But we're not to use that pursuit as justification for shutting our doors and lives to other folk. The second thought in closing is some outside the church say Christianity is a crutch. People get into Jesus because they can't handle life on their own. They're too weak to face Life without something else. I don't need a crutch. I can face life on my own. I believe in myself. My response is, Christianity is not just a crutch. It's more like a life support system. Oh, it's a lot worse than you think. Every human being has a terminal disease called alienation from God. No one is truly on their way to spiritual health until they come to the great physician, Jesus Christ. You can refuse to come to the doctor, but you're only hurting yourself and choosing to live under a delusion of health. Come to Christ. He came for you and me. Christ didn't come to establish big-time religion. He didn't come to impress us with his high and mightiness. He came to eat and drink with us. To sit at table with us. He came to find those who are lost and broken. He came for the sick. He came for those in need. He came for you and me. He came for you and me. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son Jesus among us and he sat at table with us. He ate and drank with us. He stepped into the riot of humanity to rescue us, to save us, to give us a better future. To give us hope. To atone for our sin. To remove our guilt before you, Lord. So that we can be free and whole. We thank you for that, Lord. And I pray for anybody here that has not come to that place in their life, yet that today's the day they would do that. That today they would finally say, yeah, I'm sick. I need help. I need to be rescued. I need a new life. I pray that today they would ask for you to come and save them, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.